Welcome to Inside Wall Street, where we bring you stories from the trading world. On today's episode, we speak with Mark Petrino, former hedge fund manager and head instructor at Benzinga Trading School. During his impressive career, Mark traded alongside some of the legends in Wall Street, like Mario Gibelli and Steve Cohen, after whom the TV series Billions was based on. All right, welcome guys here to today's session. Here we have Mark Petrino, Chief Educator at Benzinga Trading School here. Welcome to uh, today's podcast, Inside Wall Street. Mark Petrino, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great, Rodrigo. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I know that you've had some experience trading in some really big funds uh, with Steve Cohen, Mario Gibelli. Those are some legendary investors. Yeah, Mario Gabelli, um, he hired me. I met him when I was in business school. I was at uh, the New University of New York Business School in, in the city. I'm in Greenwich Village. But anyway, I met Mario. Uh, make a long story short, uh, he hired me when there was an opening on the trading desk. And I went in there. And at the time, I don't, I mean, this was a while ago. I don't remember how much Mario managed back then. It was like maybe three to $5 billion dollars. Um, now I think he manages in excess you know, 50 billion, maybe like I, I had professors that were literally Nobel prize winners, right? Literally, you know, um, and I think like Gabelli is probably like the smartest person I've ever met. But anyway, I was fortunate enough that I had, uh, I had a spot there. Um, he had a broker dealer and I went in there and I was a market maker, uh, making markets and penny stocks and some of the stocks that mm-hmm. we were trading. Um, after a few years there, I decided to move basically to make more money. Um, and I went over and that's when I joined Steve Cohen, uh, at SAC, which, you know, whenever I tell people I worked at SAC, the question is always, oh, is billions realistic or is billions real? Well, I haven't seen billions, but (laughs) I am making a promise to people that I will watch billions. Now, when I was there, that's when I got my first exposure to like charting and people looking at charts and technicals you know gabelli was more of a traditional value manager he's not really looking at charts he's more of a graham and dodd school of you know looking at price earnings ratios that kind of things but when i was at sac a lot of the people that i saw around me were really into trading off of charts and that's where i really got to start to learn to teach myself about it. What actually got you into trading the first time? Well, How did you get into it? You know, I grew up, um, it, you know, I mean, we weren't like poor or starving or anything like that. But I grew up, you know, you know, pretty poor in a really wealthy town in Greenwich, Connecticut. And, you know, when I was a kid, I, I used to feel kind of like, you know, insecure about it. And I remember I used to like ride my bike around or whatever. And I would look at all these big mansions and stuff. And I would think like, you know, what do these people do that can make them live, you know, in these big mansions and these big estates and everything. So that kind of brought me into Wall Street. Now, once I got to Wall Street, it was very different than I thought it would be. But what I find fascinating about it is, you know, at this point, it's not really, you know, about money because I've learned that. You know, you can have a lot of money and still be a miserable person or, you know, vice versa, um, have a little bit of money or no money and still be a, you know, very nice person. Um, But anyway, what fascinates me about the markets is one is I'm really into history and you see these historical uh, things repeat themselves in the market. Like, for example, 
people ask me like, all right, well, how do you know when the market is at a top? And I tell people, well, the market is at a top when people start saying this time it's different, right? This time is different. Now think about this, right? In the 1920s, in the booming 20s or the roaring 20s, the market was really ripping higher. There was this new terminology that got developed where analysts talked about old era stocks and new era stocks. People were saying this time it's different. The old stocks like say, you know, whatever, United Saddle Maker or United Horseshoe Maker, that's old. That's old. That's we do that with traditional valuation. These new stocks are different. This time it's different. They're new. It could have been, I don't know what was going on in the 20s, maybe telephone or maybe radio. So what happened? Sure enough, the market collapses and Great Depression. Now you fast forward into the internet bubble, and that's kind of right when I came in, in the late 90s, and people started saying this time it's different. You have new economy stocks and old economy stocks. And if people that are listening to me have been in the markets and or you know can remember them, I'm sure they will. And the whole thing was, you know, uh, you know, like Minnesota manufacturer mining. That's an old economy stock. You know, we use traditional valuations for that. But now we have pets.com, right? The same rules don't apply. Now it's different. We can um you know, instead of valuing a company on how much money they make, we can value a company based on how many clicks are on their website. This time it's different. You know, sure enough, the market, uh, you know, blew up. We've over the past couple months, and this is one of the things that led me in the class to foresee that this downtrend was coming, was I've seen a couple articles where people say this time it's different. And I've pointed them out in class, like one particular article said that the rules are being rewritten in the VIX index for VIX trading. Now, that, that was the article, right? The rules are being rewritten. When you say the rules are being rewritten, what are you saying? You're saying this time it's different. So this particular writer or analyst noted that even though the market was rallying, the VIX index was going higher. The VIX index is, an, is what we call an implied volatility index of options. The easiest way to look at it is pretend it's insurance. A portfolio manager buys options to protect their portfolio. If a portfolio manager thinks the portfolio is going to go down, they may go and buy options as insurance. They would buy options or contracts that go up in value if the portfolio goes down. It's a hedge, all right? So whenever we have these big blowups, like for instance, in the COVID crash in um, you know, March of 20, the VIX index, the index which measures essentially how much managers are willing to pay for that insur insurance goes sky high because managers are panicking. They think the market is going to drop even farther. So they don't mind paying higher prices for insurance, right? Just like you know, I don't know if you lived somewhere where there was, you know, where there was going to be a fire, uh, you know, you wouldn't mind paying more for insurance. So traditionally, analysts have called this VIX index the fear index. But here's the thing. And here's where this analysis was wrong. And here's why it's not different, even though people think it is. In a moment of euphoria where markets are really booming. All right. And portfolio managers will pay higher premiums to get into those 
positions too. If a market's really, really, really taken off and a portfolio manager wants to perhaps buy some puts to lock in their gains, they're going to pay willing to pay a higher premium. So that VIX index is going to go up. So the VIX index, rightfully so, can be called the fair index, but it could also be called the euphoria index. And the fact that the VIX index was going higher when the market was going higher is not different. It's, you know, it's not different this time. It's just people just don't know how to interpret it. What would you say um, was one of the craziest things you saw there? Like when you were working there, just things that you were like, wow, that just blew your mind off. Like when you were, you know, in the institutional world, things that you were like, wow, I didn't know that's that worked that way. Oh, um, man, I could tell you so many stories. Like I tell you, there's a lot of stories I can't tell you until we're hanging out in Las Vegas together, having a few beers. I, you know, I've seen some crazy stuff go on. I've seen people get destroyed emotionally by trading. I, I worked with this portfolio manager. He made all these, he, you know, he was managing probably a couple hundred million dollars at this particular firm that I worked at. He made all these bad decisions and you know, he got destroyed. He got, he just got wiped out. All the clients took the money out. So anyway, the guy like disappears for three or four days and no one knows where he is. So, you know, we contact the police and, you know, whatever, um, you know, cause we call no, you know, no one's answering. Turns out that he started having a case of hiccups. Now I don't, now I don't want to make it sound funny cause it's a serious illness, but he couldn't stop hip cupping. And he actually ended up in the hospital. So, you know, I've seen people like destroyed like that. I've seen other times where, you know, one day where I was at SAC, where, you know, SAC has all these different groups or back, you know, back then they did like this particular group might trade the auto stock. This particular group trades utility. And I remember one time where someone came in and they showed Steve, Hey man, look at this gold chart. Steve back then, I, you know, he kind of traded everything, whatever, whatever market there was an opportunity he would be in. And I remember like, you know, gold rallies and he gets, you know, on the squawk box on the speaker, the whole room can hear it. You know, the trader on, down on the floor of the mercantile in Chicago. And it's like, you know, it's like just insanity. It's like, oh, gold, you know, this price 10 for, 10 for 20, 50, you know, blah, blah. And then like Steve's like, you know, buy it now, buy it, 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 sell, sell. All right, let it go. Sell. It was like sheer insanity for like five minutes. And then when it was over, he's like, all right, guys, I'm going to go get lunch. I'll be back in about 20 minutes. And when he left, you know, someone was like, dude, he just made a $9 million profit, you know, in like five minutes. Of course, he's trading big money. But, you know, in that five minutes of insanity, he was buying it, buying it, buying it, got up. And then, you know, selling it, selling it, selling it. So, you know, I, I guess that's both extreme, you know, from the guy who gets actually crushed to the guy who gets to become the billionaire and buy the New York Mets. I've seen some shady things involved, which, you know, I've obviously never been involved with, but I know of a particular firm, of a particular firm. Now, keep in mind, this is a long time ago, you know, so don't try to figure out who it is. So when you're on what they call the buy side of Wall Street, the buy side is the side where you have to pay a commission to execute a trade. Just like a retail trader, they have to pay a commission to execute a trade. They have to go through a broker. That's the law. That's just how it works. If you want to trade on exchange, you got to go through a broker. So these hedge funds or these big institutional money managers pay out a lot of commissions, right? Because they're throwing around tens of millions of dollars 
And brokers want that business because if they execute the trades, they get the commissions. So there have been cases, and I'm sure not just on Wall Street, but in other businesses where, you know, there are kickbacks and, you know, people do shady things, you know, you know, hey, if you send me X amount of commissions, I'll, you know, give you this illegal kickback, right? It happens in other businesses too. So anyway, this one particular firm, uh, this one trader was throwing all this business to one particular broker. Turns out that they proved that there was shady stuff going on. But here's the thing, Rodrigo, right? In a perfect world, what should that firm have done? The firm should have gone to the SEC and said, we have illegal behavior going on here. You know, we need to address it. What would happen? It would be in the news. That firm, all their other clients would be like, oh, we're getting the hell out of here. So the firm would go under, everyone would lose their jobs. So what happens? They let the manager resign to pursue personal interest and, you know, say, oh, we wish him best of luck. And as a rule, I think most traders are pretty, pretty ethical, but there are certainly some shady people out there. So that was a pretty crazy then. You were were you trading right after the dot com bubble? Is that when like or like right before it? I was trading like during it. Yeah, like nineteen ninety seven. Take uh, us back bubble. to those days. Take us back to those days. Like as the bubble was forming, where were you? What were you doing? Were you trading at a desk or what was going on? Well, that's that's right after I left the SAC. So I was the head of trading at that fund down in New York City. It's kind of hard for younger people to picture now but it's like all of a sudden we had email <laughs> you know and email never existed before and i literally remember when i was in business school the first time i ever got on the internet the assignment was like get on the internet and open an account so i remember going down to the computer lab uh, at nyu and being like what the hell is this? And there was someone next to me like, hey, do you know how to get on the internet? And they were like, oh yeah, sure, blah, 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 blah. It was like the roaring 20s, I guess. Like, you know, people were sending around, you know, emails of jokes and stuff that you now would probably get fired a hundred times for. You know, everyone was making money. The broker dealers were making money because there was a lot of business. The buy side firms were making money because stocks were going up, going out to dinners with the $500 bottles of wine or you know, the thousand dollar dollar bottles of wine. Were people calling a top there or were they were just like enjoying it? Oh, yeah. Things? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the first time the first time I ever heard the allusion to that we were in a bubble was in the late 90s when Mario Gabelli, going back to how smart he is, kept talking about the tulip mania. The tulip mania. He's like, oh, this is like the tulip mania. Tulip mania. Well, I don't know. I think it was in the 1600s where supposedly this mania for tulip bulbs, where people just went crazy when supposedly they were mortgaging their houses to buy tulip bulbs, and then it all came crashing down. So yeah, I mean, absolutely. You got to remember, for every buyer, there is a seller, and when something is trading at the top, people are selling it. You know, going back to like where we talk about where history repeats, right? There's a famous book about the stock market that's called Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. That's supposedly written about uh, Jesse Livermore, who was a great trader in the 1920s. Like he would have been the equivalent of like a hedge fund manager. So anyway, in the book, he's at a party and he hears two people or two you know wealthy old ladies talk about the new stocks that they were just buying. So he took that as a negative sign and... You know, sure enough, the market went down. 
there's another story of kind of kind of from the same era where Joseph Kennedy, that patriarch of the Kennedy family, he was a Wall Street, what you would call an operator back then, but like a hedge fund manager, where, you know, it's 1929 and he's on his way to his office and he gets his shoe shine and the shoe shine boy starts giving him stock tips. So anyway, he goes to the office and he sells all his stocks and the market crashes and the rest is history. So here's the thing. When people that don't typically buy stocks are buying stocks there's no one left after them to keep the price going higher you know wall street's a food chain the really 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 smart people are buying say in march of 2020 you know then you get up to this food chain and when you have people that all of a sudden aren't buying stocks anymore start buying them well then um there's only one way the market could go so in fast forward to 2000 and it was literally the same thing you know you could be out for dinner and your waiter would be like oh are you guys in the stock market you know i just bought xyz or you guys should look at abc you know that was like right at you know this is like february or march right before the market just completely blows up and i you know not to scare people now but because the market's been going down but we have to remember NASDAQ lost 80% of its value. You know, I mean, that's pretty significant. What is, what is, what have we lost now over the last month or two? I don't know, 15 or, you know, 15%, 20%. NASDAQ was down in two years over 80%. And then you have a double whammy where, you know, 9 11 comes along, right? And I was in New York when that happened. You know, Cameron Fitzgerald and, Keith Wyatt or KBW were in the top of those towers. After that happened, you know, obviously it was an attack on our country, but all us traders and all us in the trading community felt as though it was like an attack on our way of life as well, because it's like, well, America is great because of capitalism. It's, it's amazing how things went from like such good times. That's a crazy year. That's your first year, like a couple of years of trading and you get all that at once. That's a pretty wild start. Yeah. So I saw the internet bubble and then we saw 9-11. And, uh, you know, then we had fast forward, we had the commodities bubble, the housing bubble, and we've had the cannabis stock bubble a few years ago. So yeah. these bubbles come along every now and then. How were rates when that happened? When like in 2001? I, I think, I think that, well, 9-11 was a Tuesday and the markets reopened the following Monday. And if I remember correctly, I think right before the markets opened, they came out and they said, we're cutting interest rates by, to look it up, but it was either 50 basis points or it was 100 basis points. And, you know, the markets went down and then they really rebounded, but then they continued to go low, lower after that. And I actually can tell you this, and this is a true story. I'm not making this up. The Friday before 9-11, and I could even show you on a chart sometime. One of the guys I worked with comes in and he was like, hey, man, are you seeing what's going on with some of these airline stocks? So we started looking at him like, yeah, what the hell is going on here? The market was like really, really starting to come apart. Then Monday, it fell even more. All right. Then, of course, you know, Tuesday morning, the attacks happen. It's almost like half of the 9-11 sell off happened before 9-11 even occurred. I think now it kind of goes without saying that there are a lot of wealthy families in the Middle East that knew it was going to happen. You know, I think to this day, right, aren't there still a bunch of pages redacted out of the 
9-11 commission report. People knew it was coming. You know, I am 100% convinced. I mean, we didn't know, obviously, that, oh, gee, we're about to have a terrorist attack. But we knew that there was something weird going on in the stocks. They were just being sold too aggressively. And then, you know, sure enough, unfortunately, the rest is history. Fast forward, you think things are getting better. And then we have the, oh, wait. Um, yeah, so, all right. So now it's it's 2005, and I'm still <laughs> okay. working at that same fund. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm still the head trader. But I don't remember when, but in between 2000 and 2005, that firm acquired a firm, another money management firm that was out on the West Coast um, in Pasadena. So the owner of that firm and the owner of the first firm became partners. And there was this, you know, East Coast, West Coast battle. Uh, it's like the, you know, like the East Coast, West Coast rap battle. Like we always, you know, make fun of it. It's like, all right, the West Coast partner wins, the East Coast partner wins. Anyway, finally, the West Coast partner wins. They say, Mark, we're shutting the New York City office. If you come to Pasadena, you can, you know, still be our head of trading. It This was a Friday, all right, that this all goes down. My daughters, I have twin daughters, were born on that Monday. So it's like I literally like lose my job on Friday and then my daughters are born on Monday. So, you know, it was a pretty uh, it was a pretty eventful week. Let's just put it that way. But, you know, the way things work when one door closes, another door opens within about two months, I found a position at a startup hedge funds, meaning a new fund, a, a a guy that was really successful somewhere else decided to start his own own fund. And it was just good timing. And I ended up being the head trader at that hedge fund uh, by where I live. I could literally walk to work. So I was there and that's the fund that I was at all through the financial crisis. The financial crisis was was crazy. I mean, you know, all these big firms, these big institutions like Lehman Brothers, you know, had been in business for 150 years and you know Lehman Brothers goes out of business. You know, it was crazy. And what happened was the powers that be held interest rates artificially low in the late 90s. So investors that typically looked for yield, meaning investors that wanted income, they want to buy stocks that pay high dividends or whatever, there weren't any real options. You know, interest rates for the 10-year had historically been around five or 6%, you know, now they were below 1%, similar to how the environment's been recently. So anyway, there was this demand for products that had yield. So Wall Street figured out how to take mortgages and wrap them together and turn them into these tradable products called credit default swaps, where basically it made all the stuff seem artificially safer than it was. All right. So the chickens are always going to come home to roost. And that finally started to happen in 2007. And then, you know, there was the election coming up and, you know, it was clear the Republicans weren't going to win and people were afraid, you know, whether rightly or wrongly, I'm not talking about politics, that if, uh, you know, if President Obama came in, then the healthcare sector would become socialized. So people are, were really like thinking about this kind of stuff. And the markets really went into these free falls. I have a good friend who worked at Lehman Brothers for 30 years, man. He had $3 million of Lehman Brothers stock in his retirement account. That was going to be what he retired on. 
he watched that stock go from whatever it was, like, I don't know, $200 a share to wherever. And because he was an employee, he wasn't allowed to sell it. He ended up, when by the time he could sell it, it was worth $10,000. So he had $3 million go to $10,000 in the course of, you know, maybe six or eight months. So there's literally people saying like, you know, is our civilization <laughs> collapsing? And I remember some of my friends asking me, should I put my money in the market? And me saying, yes, absolutely. And they're saying, well, everyone's saying that, you know, the markets could collapse and all this stuff. And then I said, well, your money wouldn't be worth anything anyway. So you got nothing to lose. You know, it's like you got nothing to lose. If society collapsed, your money's not going to be worth anything. So you might as well put it in the market. That was March of 09. And that's right around where President Obama started negotiating with the insurance companies. And then people started to think healthcare is not going to be socialized. And, you know, just like things got to an extreme on the upside, they got to an extreme on the downside. You know, I was very lucky in that time because I was working for a, a fund that did very well. But I know a lot of people lost their jobs for no, you know, no fault of their own. You know, all these big head honchos that get paid all these, all this money at, you know, Lehman Brothers or Bear Stearns or you know, Merrill Lynch, you know, they made all these bets and they were wrong. And the whole company ends up suffering because of it. Going back to the internet bubble, it's similar to like Enron. You know, Enron was one of the internet darlings and the whole thing was a fraud. And there were people that worked there for their 20, 30 years. And these places blow up because of fraud. And all these people lose their savings, their retirement accounts, their kids' college tuitions. I think, in my opinion, these white-collar criminals, like in that case, it was Ken Lay was the CFO. I mean, he went to jail, but he probably went to like some country club, you know, country club prison, right? It's like a low, like a low-end hotel. You know, they should treat these people just like they walked into your house and stole money from you, you know, at gunpoint. You know, it's like in The Godfather, you know, Don Corleone says Tom Hagen to law school because he's like, you can steal more money with a briefcase than with a gun. Like Bernie Madoff, you know, Bernie Madoff, uh, I used to trade with his firm a lot, actually. In the late 90s, in this whole internet bubble, the biggest over-the-counter trading firms there were were like, you know, Goldman, Morgan Stanley, Cantor Fitzgerald. But Bernie Madoff, you know, Madoff was one of these firms. You know, I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. But what happened was Madoff was a market maker, right? And market makers make the spread. They buy a stock at 20 and they sell it at, say, 20 and a quarter. So back in the early 70s, there were these three pioneers that they didn't work together, but they all, all kind of came out around the same time. A guy named Boyd Jeffries, a guy named Don Whedon, and... Then we have uh, Bernie Madoff. So there was really no competition to the New York Stock Exchange up and through the, you know, up and through from its beginning up until like, say, I don't know, 1960, 1970. So then these three guys developed what we call the third, the third market or the over-the-counter market. So they formed their big firms, you know, they all got you know, unbelievably wealthy. In the mid-90s, the rules changed, the SECs changed the rules. Instead of having fractions, like instead of trading for eighths or a quarter, you know, a quarter, obviously 25 cents, an eighth, 12 and a half cents, they were going to go to decimals. And that changed everything. 
because now the spreads got really narrow because of the competition. Now there weren't eight spreads anymore. There weren't six cent spreads anymore. Now things were a penny or even half a penny like they are now. So all of a sudden, Bernie Madoff's business model didn't work anymore because the whole market-making model didn't work. So he could have just retired right then, hung it up, and he would be considered a Wall Street legend. And I don't know, I guess because of his ego, he just had to keep it going. And I mean, you talk about a crazy story, dude. It's like not only did Madoff burn all those people, like one of his sons committed suicide, right? I think his other son died of cancer. I don't know. I mean, I guess there are sleaze bags in every every industry. It's just, I, I find it utterly unbelievable that someone could be worth hundreds of millions of dollars and they could have just retired and instead they decided to commit this elaborate fraud. Um, but I actually know people that worked for, for Madoff. You know, my friend was a market maker. <laughs> and after all this happened, we were out to dinner and, uh, you know, my friend was like, man, he's like, I, I had a really bad quarter. And I went in there and I talked to Bernie and I'm like, you know, sorry, Bernie, I had a really bad quarter. And, you know, Bernie's like, eh, don't worry about it. You know, here's an extra $20,000 for your bonus. And I was like, yeah, well, it's pretty easy to give away money when it's not yours. <laughs> so, I mean, I hate to laugh because a lot of people got burned, but, you know, Madoff had this reputation of being like very generous, but like, you know, it's easy to give away money if it's not yours. 2017, I think there was something with rates um, that happened. Uh, 17, 18 in the, in late 18, like September to December of 2018, there was a really, uh, nasty sell-off at the time I was not trading. I was working as a consultant. I, uh, I tried to, um, when I left my last fund, I tried to, I, I kind of wanted to go out on my own to do like my consulting kind of thing. So I was uh, following the markets then, but I wasn't actually trading. But yeah, that was a pretty hefty sell-off. And then when we fast forward to the COVID crash, and this is something that I talk about in our lesson number seven, which is tomorrow, where, you know, how you look into the past to kind of figure out what's going on now. So in March of 2020, you know, the markets are in complete meltdown. People are totally panicking. You know, it's COVID. Is it the end of civilization again? The S&P or the SPY, which is, I use that as the market barometer, the S&P 500, got right down to around those same levels of the bottom of December of 2018. So I said, well, you know, we're getting down to an important support level here there's a good chance that this is the bottom. Right around 235 on SPY. And now SPY is around 430 we were talking about. So anyway, March 22nd, March 23rd of 2020, SPY gets right down to there. Then it breaks its downtrend line. In other words, we have the downtrend line and it breaks it. So I say, you know, this is the bottom right here. And on the article that I wrote, I put, you know, I wanted to put the buyers have returned. But some of the you know people above me in the organization were still really bearish, so they made me put the buyers have returned at least for now. But I, I talk about that article in my uh, you know in my class seven. But you know nothing special, Rodrigo. You know nothing mysterious. It's just the market reached a level that was previously really important support, and they say markets have memories, and that's what they mean. A level that is a support level or a resistance level, they can stay intact 
for a long time, you know, months, maybe even years, you know, even, even farther than that. I've seen levels that were important for 15 years. Like for instance, the XLF, the financial spider, right before the great recession or the financial crisis, it peaked at $31. In January of 18, 10 years after that, it reached $31 again, and guess what? It hit resistance and rolled over. So we're talking about a level that was important here um, for years. But anyway, going back to the sell-off in or the bottom of uh, March of 2020, you know, I didn't, I didn't identify it because I'm like some great secret super genius that's got this secret model. It's just, hey, man, this thing had reached a level that was important support in the past. It's really oversold. And now it broke its downtrend. It looks like buyers are coming into the market. And turns out that that was the bottom to like within a day. So by keeping it simple, by focusing on these basic fundamentals of which levels are important, which trends are important, and what's the momentum driving the trends, we can make really accurate market calls. After all those crashes that happened, not, you know, now COVID happened, you have your, your layout ready because you already been lived through that kind of stuff that kind of market action, it's kind of scary when the markets drop five, 6%. That's where you make your, that's where you make your biggest profit in your quickest time. I mean, you know, as soon as civilization doesn't collapse, right? A market like that comes along, I don't know, once a year, once every couple of years, and you can get in there. And if you have a lot of confidence, see, here's the secret. Like a lot of people try to catch the exact bottom when, when a stock is going down or when a market's going down. But they're typically just guessing that that's the bottom. They don't have a logical reason for it. So what we want to do is we want to buy stuff after it's already reversed and started going up. So people think that's a little counterintuitive, and I can understand why, because they would say, well, why would I, why would I buy a stock at a higher price than it's currently trading? Well, the answer is because it stacks the risk-reward ratio into your favor. You know, you're not going to catch the exact bottom, but you might get on the train as it's already started to move, so to speak. So you'll have more conviction. But I don't want to see the market go down because it hurts people. But when the markets go down and they have these really nasty sell-offs, there is really good opportunities to profit. And it's been the same way since the markets formed in the late 1700s. So I don't think anything will, you know, I think those opportunities will still exist. Uh, going forward. Which sounds like those are the wild, wild west days, like the cowboy days. Fast forward now, right? Um, it's it's really changed, man. It's changed a lot because like when I first started, trading was still really, a, you know, a human game. It was you pick up the phone, you talk to people, you learn at which firm who you can trust. Like, for instance, Cameron Fitzgerald, you know. I had a guy there who I became really good friends with over the years. And he he lived, he wasn't in there on 9-11, so he's still alive and with us. But I got to know him, and he became really good friends with me. And But there were other guys at that same firm that were real sleazebags that would try to rip you off if they could. You know, how could they do that? Well, say they hear, oh, you know, someone's coming in with a big order to buy XYZ. Well, maybe they might call one of their clients and be like, hey, shh, there's a big there's a big order of XYZ here. You go out and buy some or whatever. Um, so it was a real relationship game. It was really, I mean, think about it. Like, I guess it's in a lot of ways, it's like becoming a cop, 
right? It's like these people are your partners. You're you're at work for eight, nine hours a day. And in a typical trading day, I might talk to my guy over at Counter Fitzgerald, you know, 10 times. You know, what are you seeing on this stock? You know, what are you seeing on that stock? You know, call me if you see this, call me if you see that. So it was a real re like relationship game. And there was a lot of, you know, fraternizing, like going out to dinner, going to games, all that kind of stuff. But now it's all really computerized for the most part. You know, most traders now are computers. Um, you know, when I, there's a type of trading that's called cash equities trader, uh, which is I, what I basically was. When I first started uh, in the late 90s, Goldman Sachs had 600 cash equity traders, 600. As far as I know, now they have two, two from 600 to two. So it shows you, you know, the computerization has really, you know, taken over trading and the computers and the algorithms can do the work of what, you know, used to be 10 humans, 20 people, 30 people. Um, so trading has become much more of like an operational thing now. It's not the same game as it was when I was doing it. So that's another reason why I decided not to get back into it. It's just, it's not fun anymore. And now fast forward to everything. Now you're the chief educator here at the Benzinga Trading <laughs> School. You are literally teaching thousands and thousands of traders and investors how to responsibly trade, how to trade with a plan, with a strategy all over the world. Yeah, uh, you can, you, uh, if you don't know what you're doing, you could lose a lot of money really fast. I, I think there are basically three things that make this school different than other schools that I've seen. All right. Well, the first is that, you know, is me. I just happen to have a lot of experience. So I'm in a really good, I have a really good background to be teaching younger traders how to trade. Two is, you know, we don't do anything too esoteric or too crazy. A lot of these chartists come up with these like far out, really bizarro techniques you know, like there's come some kind of secret system or secret formula that works. And, you know, that's not that's not the case. Um, so we talk about the basic fundamentals. So the second thing, you know, is one is my experience, too, is we keep it logical. We keep it in common sense and we keep it in the sense of what are real institutional traders? How do they look at the market? The third thing is, is that, and this, I guess, could be the most important, is that we're actually looking at the markets in real time. We're, what I, I just mentioned, the 430 level on SPY. We, we were looking at that this morning as a class at our 7 o'clock class and as our noon class. Anyone could be a genius if they're just using hindsight. And saying, oh, look, back in August, I said this was going to happen. And sure enough, it did. And I was right. I think, you know, by having this um, real-time application, it really makes it 100 times better than other things, right? If you want to, um, you know, if you want to learn how to, to, to uh, if you want to learn karate, yeah, you can pick up a book and you could read about all the moves. But you're not really learning karate really learning karate you got to like go to a dojo and like fight against other people you know or you could think you're uh, you could be a boxer and you could think you're you know a great 
you're going to be ready to go and be a great boxer and you can do a thousand push-ups and you can run until you get in the ring with someone else you don't really know what it is like you know ultimately trading is not chess a lot of people think that trading is like a chess game but it's not because in chess the rules are always the same you know the bishop always moves the same way the knight always moves the same way trading is more like poker and i don't mean it in the sense of gambling but poker is a skill because good poker players they learn how to read other people's you know signals emotions facial expressions you know whatever it is they do they can keep track of the cards uh, i'm not a poker player myself but the point is is that in the market there are humans on the other side of the trade so things change what works today may not work tomorrow you know what works tomorrow may not work the day after so we have to maintain this like level of flexibility and i think that uh, the way we have the class structured i think it does that and i think it does a good job at it I tell people the only prerequisite for the class is someone who wants to learn. I don't care if you've never traded before or if you've been experienced. You just have to want to learn. You know, I don't want people thinking that this the class is like, you know, show up and here's your, you know, daily trade idea. As we go through the markets, sometimes we we come up with a lot of ideas. We might find four or five ideas. Sometimes we might not find any, although we usually find at least one or two. Yeah, I, I like teaching people that want to learn. So it's a good fit for me right now. Mark Petrino, Chief Market Strategist, Chief Educator at the Benzinga Trading School. He's the instructor. He's out helping you guys out. Chartered Market Technician, CMT. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see yeah. you guys on the next time. Okay, Rodrigo. Thanks a lot. We'll talk All to right. you soon.